So without further ado, let's put our hands together. Let's welcome up Pastor Benjamin Robinson. How's everybody doing tonight? Good. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, it's great to be with New Philadelphia again. We always love uh, coming home. It was so cool looking at my Facebook page and people were writing, Welcome Home. And uh, we do feel at home. And I, I told the church, uh, Living Hope, I said, uh, We're family with New Philadelphia Church. We're family. I mean, we're just, we're just yoked up in the kingdom and uh, we are family, so this is uh, really a homecoming. And I'm really excited about being here with you. I'm really excited about doing an encounter with you uh, because I've wanted to do this with you since I met Pastor Christian. And uh, even coming here with, with uh, the Niagara Conference in July, I couldn't wait to do an encounter with you. Um, encounter is, uh, if there's one thing that I believe God's given me for the body of Christ, it's this. It's what we're going to do. If there's one message uh, that I believe that is at the center of what God has apostolically commanded me to give to the body of Christ, it's what I'm going to give you over the next couple of days. Uh, and I, I just want to give you a little background really quickly um, uh, to tell you where this all came from and, and what it is and what it's all about. Uh, first of all, this is the last time we're doing it as the Encounter Conference. We're changing the name, but we're not changing the substance of the teaching. Um, but we did it. Back in 1998, I began to write a book, uh, and I wrote a few chapters of a book, and the, the central premise of, the, of what I'm going to give you the next couple of days was the subject of that book. And I wrote a couple of chapters and sent them to a, a professor of mine at Fuller Seminary who was a mentor to me. And he read them, and he wrote me back, and he said, Benjamin, this is some great stuff. There's good stuff here. It demonstrates a wisdom beyond your years. And it's really going to set people free and, and be a great resource in the body of Christ. But it's not time for you to write it yet. You're not qualified to write it yet because your life does not yet demonstrate the truths that you convey. Your life has to catch up with the wisdom the Lord has given you. He said, so this is what I want you to do. I want you to put it away for 10 years. And let your life catch up with the revelation God's given you. And then write it. So I did that. I put it away for 10 years. I put it away in 1998. And the Lord sovereignly gave it back to me in 2008. And when he gave it to me in 2008, he gave it to me in a different form than uh, he had kind of taken it away from me in 1998. How many know the Lord never takes anything away? He never withholds anything from you. He might hold it for you. But he doesn't hold it from you. When I was a little kid, whenever I get money, it would burn in my pocket. I wanted to spend it immediately. I mean, if I got $5, I, and my mother could see me just antsy. And she would say, give me that $5. I thought she was taking it from me. I always, every single time, no matter how many times she gave it back to me when it was time, Every time I felt like she was taking it from me, what she would do is she'd take it and she'd say, I'm putting it in this drawer right here. And she'd put it in the top drawer of her dresser. And she'd say, 
I'm holding it for you. Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 2 that he holds victory in store for the righteous. God's got a top drawer full of victory with your name on it. And he's holding it for you. And there's all kinds of things of the kingdom. Revelation, knowledge, insight, power, anointing. Things that are too big for you right now that you have to grow into. And God says, I'm going to hold it for you. And some of you here tonight, you've been crying out for things and wondering why God has denied you. You feel like you've been denied. You feel like you've been restrained, like you've been held back, like God has denied your request. You say, God, I don't understand. And God is simply saying to you tonight, I haven't taken it from you. I don't take things from people. I'm a God who gives, not a God who takes. I'm holding it for you. So anyway, uh, that was a, I think that was prophetic because that wasn't in my notes. That's, that's the definition of the prophetic, right? Whatever you didn't plan to say. <laughs> this just came right now. Uh, <laughs> Hi, Brady. How are you, sir? Good, good to see you. Yes. And you must be Sky. Congratulations to the two of you. Am I invited? <laughs> Virginia's a long way away. But um, yes, yeah, so, so anyway, the Lord gave it back to me in 2008 in a different form than, than he had uh, taken it from me. And I sat down one day and I just, all of a sudden this construct came. Purpose, identity, nature, and mission. And all of a sudden, everything that, that I had put away 10 years prior came flooding back. And I realized that the Lord had grown it and developed it and reformatted it over the past 10 years. But more than that, he had worked it into my life. It was a lesson that he had taken 10 years to teach me. And he's still teaching me. Don't get me wrong. I'm not done with this thing. Every time I teach this, I get convicted. By the way, those of, you, those of you that are preachers in the room, listen to your own sermons. Do you listen to your own sermons? I listen to my messages and I cry and I repent. <laughs> and I come to the altar. You know why? Because <laughs> I do. I have my own time where the, I just, you almost forget it's you talking because it really isn't. You're allowing yourself to be used as a vessel to speak to God's people. But when you go back and listen to it, God speaks it right to you. And it's like you can't hide behind the pulpit anymore. And so I, I, say, that, I say that to say, uh, by way of disclaimer, I don't perfectly model any of these things that I'm going to share with you. I'm still in process. We're all in, on a journey. Paul said that himself. I don't count myself to have already apprehended or become perfected in any of these things that I'm talking to you about. But one thing I do... I forget what's behind. I reach for what's ahead, and I press toward the mark of the high calling, that I might lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also has laid hold of me. And so the Lord gave it back to me in 2008, and in, in uh, January of 2008, um, I might be getting the timeline wrong. I, ever since my daughter was born, my years are all off. Yes, it was January 2008 because 2009 my wife was pregnant. 
So February of 2008, we took 150 people from our church up to a retreat center, and we did this all in one day, four sessions in one Saturday. And we drove up early in the morning. That was an awesome day. That was a day the night before I had a, um, is it okay if I'm all over the place? You'll follow me. That's okay. You'll stay with me. Uh, Friday night, I'm, I, I look in the mirror, and my wife notices in the reflection this dark black spot on my tooth. And she says, hold on, look at me. Open your mouth. And I open my mouth, and she goes, you got a cavity, my brother. Now, she looked way too excited about this. <laughs> See, the thing was, I'd never had a cavity before in my life, ever. I had never, ever in all of my life had a cavity. And I, I just was blessed with good teeth, not... not the position those teeth were in was not good. I had all kind of braces and, 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 you know, my teeth were all over the place, but they were white. And, and they never, and, you know, people say, you must have brushed your teeth three times a day. No, I brush my teeth occasionally. I'm, you know, I would go to sleep with, with candy in my mouth and wake up and running late for school. I'll brush my teeth later. And I brush my teeth occasionally. But uh, for some reason, I never got cavities. You know, um, but uh, that night, that Friday night, and I always made fun of my wife because, you know, I used to tell her she had more cavities than teeth. And uh, um, that is mean. So, so, you know, I was still being sanctified. You know, I'm still being sanctified. And so um, she looked in my mouth. She saw this black spot. She said, you got a cavity. I said, what? She said, you see that black, that big black mark on your tooth? I said, yeah. She goes, that's tooth decay. That tooth is rotten. You got a cavity. I said, oh, my God. You know, when, some, when you've never experienced something and you experience it for the first time, it's like death, you know? I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like freaking out. It's like the first time I got a nosebleed, you know? My wife and I were walking through Walmart. You know, I'm a grown man, and my nose starts bleeding. I thought I was dying. I'm like, what the? Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> She's like, yeah, you're all right. Go to the bathroom. You know, she's still, she's still shopping. I'm like, baby, my nose is bleeding. She's like, so, <laughs> you know, but, uh, so I'm, you know, I'm brushing my, t- I, you know, I grab the toothpaste. I'm frantic and I grab my toothbrush and I pile on like, I'm going to make up for all the years of not brushing my teeth. And I just have this big pile of toothpaste and I'm for like 30, 45 minutes. My wife's just laughing her head off to her. It's the funniest thing she's ever seen. Right. And so uh, all night long, I'm dreaming of my teeth just rotting and all falling out of my mouth. You know, I'm just gums, you know, all of my, my whole, uh, the whole night, I'm just having these dreams of just tooth decay, just overtaking my mouth and cancer of the teeth and, and just, just rotten teeth falling out of my mouth. And I'm just, I wake up in a cold sweat in the morning, just in terror, you know? So we drive up to Mount Hermon and we do this encounter retreat with 150 of our church members. It was the most powerful thing I had ever seen. People being set free. People being established in the truth. People having aha moments all over the place. Ah, people, you could just see as just the weight is lifting off of people's minds and hearts. I had no idea that this, this type of, I didn't know what to expect. I, you know, when, you, you, when the Lord gives you some revelation, you just think, okay, this is cool. But all of a sudden, it's setting people free. That night, it's, we finish by about 5 p.m., and we drive down the hill, and we, we go down into the city. And I had to preach at a youth rally at a public high school uh, in Fremont, California, that night. And so we're leaving there, and that was powerful. It was about 300 uh, high school kids in a gymnasium 
worshiping. And I mean, it was crazy. It was awesome. They brought a bunch of their unsaved friends, and they're getting saved and delivered and set free. So uh, we're driving home, and, and uh, I'm thinking, okay, now I've got to get ready to minister tomorrow morning at church. So as we're getting off the exit, it's about almost 11 p.m. We're getting off the exit, and all of a sudden I remembered my tooth. And I went, oh, oh snap. And this terror, just this, this terror just gripped my heart again. I saw my tooth. All of a sudden the presence of the Lord came and filled the car. And I said, whoa. You know, it's one thing when you've been seeking God and His presence comes. It's another thing when He just comes, uninvited, unannounced. What are you doing here? <laughs> I didn't know you were coming. You should call. <laughs> and I felt His presence localize in my face. And I said, God, this feels like healing. God, are you going to heal me? I said, well, Lord, if you want to heal me, I receive it. And all of a sudden, I felt this warmth right there. I couldn't wait to get home. We got home. I ran in the house, ran straight to the bathroom, turned on the lights, and it was gone. It was gone. So I go to my wife smiling. <laughs> I said, hey, baby, where's that black spot on my tooth? She, she laughed. Open your mouth, brother. <laughs> takes me, puts me under the light. She goes, what happened? And I told her the story. She said, uh, if I hadn't seen that with my own eyes, I wouldn't believe it. I would have called you a liar, but I saw that with my own eyes. Understanding the grace of God, the grace of God goes beyond your pursuit of him. The grace of God pursues you. You know, Paul said in, uh, in Romans, um, what is it, chapter 6, where sin abounds, grace all the more abounds? Do you know that in the Greek it's a past tense verb? Where, where sin abounds, grace has all the more abounded? Meaning grace has already abounded in that place? Meaning God's grace goes ahead of your sin and waits for you there? God's grace goes ahead of the places where you mess up and waits for you there? God's grace goes to the pits that he knows you're going to fall in and waits for you there. Already waiting and ready to pull you out. Uh, so anyway, I'm supposed to be giving you background of encounter, but I keep um, diverging. So we did encounter in February, and it was life-changing for this group of 150 people. We did it again September of the same year with another 180 people. And about... 20 people who had taken it the first time came the second time. And they said when they took it the second time, they got even deeper revelation. They were even more established in it. But the people that took it the second time, they said they were watching the faces of the people who took it the second time and what it did for them. It was amazing. So we've done it, uh, we've done it three times so far. We did it again last uh, September, this past September. We're planning on doing it at UC Berkeley this fall in November. And our goal is to reach 2,000 UC Berkeley students. And uh, we're, we're trying to get, uh, pray, we're trying to get somebody like Israel Houghton or somebody to come and, and headline the thing. And, and uh, so God has given us great favor. Pastor James Lee, you all know him. Uh, he's going to help us and, and uh, um, uh, going to really open doors for us. And so we're very, very thankful uh, for his partnership as well. But, but uh, this is... Um, 
this is the baby that God has given me to give to the body of Christ. And uh, so I'm, I'm very, very thankful for the opportunity to do this with you over the next couple of days. And my prayer is that God would give utterance, that he would give understanding, that he'd give revelation, that he would give insight, that he'd give knowledge. And I do believe, I just believe with all of my heart that this is going to change your life. And every time I do it, it changes my life. I believe we're never going to be the same again after we leave this retreat center. Father, we invite you to come in the name of your Son by the power of your Holy Spirit and that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened. And I just hear the Lord saying that what happens this weekend depends upon whether you come as one who is hungry or one who is rich. In Luke one fifty three, the scripture says, He fills the hungry with good things. But the rich, he turns away empty. And so, Father, we say to you tonight that we come hungry. And we say that whatever was to our profit, we count as loss. That we might gain Christ. And be found in him. Not having a righteousness which is of our own. But that which is by faith. We want to know you. And we want to boast in you. And so, Father, I pray for great boasting this week. I pray for a spirit of boastfulness that our souls would make their boast in the Lord. And the humble would hear of it and be glad. So we give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right, are you ready? All right. I want to begin by saying to each and every one of you that every single one of you is called to the ministry. When you think of a Christian, you don't think of a civilian. When I think of a Christian, I don't think of a civilian. I think that the church needs to come out of its civilian mentality. And we need to enlist. You know, when, when Pastor Christian was talking about mobilizing your money, man, revelation was hitting me. I thought, when I go home, I'm going to mobilize the money of the people of God. Because every dollar bill that God has put in your wallet is a warrior that he has placed under your command. But you've got to send those warriors to war. See, you've been letting your dollar bills live a civilian life for too long. Getting caught up in civilian affairs. But it's time to send them to war for the sake of the kingdom of God. Amen? But it's not just your dollars that God wants to send to war. He wants to send you to war. But before you go to war, before you enlist in the service, before you enter into the ministry, there's a few things you need to understand. You see, the church of Jesus Christ is in trouble. The church of Jesus Christ 
is not in the best of shape right now. And there's some fundamental things that we need to get right. And some fundamental things that have gone wrong. Fundamental problems that need to be healed. And some things need to be set in order. And some things need to be restored. You see, our ministry is not our ministry really. It's the ministry of Jesus Christ. You see, God was reminding me very strongly as I was in prayer for this, this session tonight. And as I was getting ready, you know, it's, it's so... <laughs> You know, when, when you're honored, when you receive honor in the body of Christ, it, it, can be, uh, it can be difficult for your soul because your soul wants to receive honor for yourself. I'll never forget, I was a student at Fuller Theological Seminary, and I got, I got called by a church in Northern California, and they said, we want you to come minister. And they flew me up, and they treated me, they treated me like I was T.D. Jakes or somebody. You know, big church, 800 people. And when I, when they introduced me and I was walking up the steps to the platform and the place went wild, standing ovation, I'm thinking, they don't even know me. Who, who, who you know, I mean, what's, what is this? But I, I said to the Lord, and I'm trying to be humble. And as I'm walking up the steps, I said, Lord, it's really hard for me to be humble when they're screaming for me like this. And, and this, this is all, this conversation's happening as I'm walking up the steps to the platform. I heard the Lord laugh. I said, Lord, what's so funny? He said, oh, nothing. It's just that you think they're screaming for you. <laughs> Let me take my anointing off your life and let's see if they scream. Let me remove the gifts that I've placed in your life and let's see if they scream. Let me remove my calling and let's see if they scream. You see, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and the people were screaming and it could have been easy for the donkey to think that they were screaming for him. But it was the Christ on the donkey. So don't be a donkey. And so, uh, um, so, you know, I'm upstairs, I'm upstairs and, 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 you know, you all have such a spirit of honor and hospitality and I just feel it. My wife and I, we feel it every time we come. We just feel so received and so loved and so honored and so blessed. But I was upstairs and I just, as I was in prayer, I just felt the Spirit of the Lord reminding me. And I was reminding my own heart and my own soul, the honor is not for you. It's for Jesus. It's the honor of Jesus. And, 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 and the Lord was saying, yes, they're honoring you, but they're honoring me in you. They're honoring what I've given you. They're honoring what I've done through you. What I've, it's, and so the honor, all the honor and all the praise goes to Jesus Christ. Why? Because the ministry is really His ministry. We're simply an extension of His ministry. And the idea of your, ex your ministry being an extension of somebody else's ministry, it's completely foreign to the body of Christ. There's such an individualized mentality as far as ministry is concerned in the body of Christ. You know, I had this thing going on in my church where there were people saying, this guy loves me, but the pastor doesn't. This person over here loves me, but the pastor doesn't. And I had to set this in order. I gathered all my leaders together and I said, let me set something in order right now. All of you minister because I appointed you to minister. And that means your ministry is an extension of mine. So when you go pray for somebody, don't you dare go in and say, I know pastor's busy, but I'm here. No, you say, Pastor sent me to minister to you. Your ministry is an extension of my ministry. You're not ministering instead of me. You're ministering because of me. I put you there. Well, guess what? There's somebody who put me here. And his name is Jesus. It's not my ministry. It's not even my ministry. It's not even my house. He's the one who died for his church. But we have such an individualized understanding of what ministry is. What, what, what it means to serve God. It's about me and my gifts. We've turned the church into a spiritualized star search.
And people in the body of Christ actually think that if you have a gift, you have a right to use it. I had somebody come to me one time and say, I want to start singing solos with the worship team and choir. Now, the only problem was this person was tone deaf. But besides that, I said, why do you think... They, they came and said, I deserve to do this. I said, why do you think you deserve this? They said, because I've been serving here faithfully for nine years. I've been serving here faithfully. I deserve this because I've been serving here faithfully for nine years. I said, let me tell you about your rights. You only got one right. You got the right to remain silent. I'm going to Mirandize you. (laughs) I don't have the right to anything. I have the right to offer my life to Jesus Christ. Listen, if, if, if I've earned something from it, then it isn't worship anymore. If I'm using it to stack up chips and then come back one day and say, I deserve this because I did this, then that wasn't worship. But if it's worship, it's simply a willing offering of my life. It says, God, my life belongs to you. I'll never forget, I was going through a season in which everything seemed to be falling apart in my life. And I cried out, I said, God, you've got to explain to me what's going on. And God said, no, I don't. I said, uh, excuse me? He said, Benjamin, you told me your life belongs to me. That means I can do with it what I please, and I don't owe you an explanation. I said, oh, good point. <laughs> if you're going to minister, your ministry has to be an extension of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, as a pastor, when I look at the people who are ministering under me, I look at the character of their ministry. I look at the way they minister. And if their ministry does not represent my ministry, in other words, if the values that they exhibit don't rec- represent my values, I'm going to call them on the table. Say, I would never do that. I would never say that. I would never come out of that heart. I would never flow like that. That's, that's, that is not what we do in this house. I'll call them on the carpet in a second. Why? Because I've got to make sure the DNA is consistent. Otherwise, this person is, is starting their own little family over here with their own little DNA, and pretty soon they've got sons and daughters running around the house that don't look like me, little spiritual baby's kids running around the house saying, what is going on in here? Do you realize that Jesus is sitting up in heaven going, Father, that's not me. What are they doing? That's not my heart. I would never do that. I would never say that. And if there's one word that we can use to describe the ministry of Jesus, it's the word compassion. Compassion. Look at this. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, 14. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Matthew 15, 30, 32. Jesus called his disciples and said to him, said to them, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. Matthew 20, 34. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight. Again and again and again, the scriptures tell us that Jesus moved with compassion. The primary motivator, the primary impetus of his ministry was compassion. Now that term compassion is a compound Latin term. Come means with and passion means to suffer. 
To have compassion means to suffer with. Jesus saw the multitudes and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That as he began to suffer with them or he took their suffering upon himself and he entered into their suffering and through his solidarity with their suffering, he brought them to wholeness. He had compassion on them. Now, it doesn't, now I'm not saying that there's no compassion in the body of Christ, but what I'm saying is that the typical exhibition of compassion in the body of Christ is far from the compassion of Jesus Christ. It's not of the same character, and I'll tell you why. Because we tend to have compassion upon those whose experience brings a, a point of identification with our own. So if I was abused as a child, I have compassion on children who are abused. And if I was orphaned and my parents abandoned me, I just have this compassion for orphans when I see them. And if I went, went through a car crash and lost a, a kidney, man, when I see people who have kidney problems, I just have compassion for them. And if I was an abused wife, I just want to minister to abused women for the rest of my life. It's my calling because I, I have compassion in that area. Why? Because I've suffered there. And so when I see someone else suffering there... Man, my heart is stirred and I want to just pour out my compassion for them. But Jesus had none of that. Because he wasn't an abused child and he wasn't an orphan. In fact, he had no internal suffering of his own at all. He didn't minister out of a cry of his own heart to, to answer some, some cry. See, when we suffer, there's something on the inside of us that cries out to understand that suffering. Why did I have to go through this? And I need to give it a purpose. And so how do I give it a purpose? I turn it towards the good of others. And I say, well, I went through this suffering so that God can use me to help others who suffer in this way. But when I begin to suffer with those who suffer because of my own suffering, it's not compassion. It's a mixture of their suffering and my suffering coming into identification with each other. And what tends to happen is so much of what I do is to solve the dilemma in my own heart. So much of what I do is to answer the cry of my own soul. So much of what I do is to fulfill my sense of longing. My sense of desire for significance. And it becomes compulsion rather than compassion. It's compulsion because it's about me needing to get something for me and using you to do it. I broke my ankle back in 2001 and I didn't have medical insurance at the time. I was serving a ministry and, and uh, the, at this particular ministry the funds were very low. And so, you know, I just hobbled around and I was in bad shape and my ankle was in terrible condition. And this brother, he comes, comes to the school one day and he says, Hey, brother, listen, uh, I, I see your ankle's in pretty bad shape. I said, Yes, it is. I'm in terrible pain. He said, Well, brother, can I pray for you? I said, Sure, no problem. I would love that. And he puts his hands around my ankle and he says, God... Touch, Brother Benjamin, because I need it. Now, at first, he had me. You know, I'm like, ooh, he just sounds anointed, you know. But then he said, touch him because I need it. And I stopped. I opened my eyes. You know, that'll break the, that, the anointing, you know. <laughs> so you need it. You're praying for me because you need it. And he, he goes on with the prayer. Lord, I need to know you're with me right now. 
I'm going through such a tough time and I need to know that you're with me and I need to know that you hear me and I need to know that you care and I need to know that, that you hear my prayer still and you'll, and if you touch him right now, it'll give me the encouragement that I need. I said, I tapped him and said, excuse me, brother. Hold on. If you needed a blessing, you should ask me to pray for you. But don't pray for me because you need it. But that's what we have happening in the body of Christ. Let me pray for you so I can see if I have the gift of healing. Let me speak this word over you so if I can see if I have the gift of prophecy. You know, let me give you some counsel to see if I have the gift of wisdom. Let, let, let's see. Let, let, let me try singing and see if I have the gift of singing. And we forget that a gift is something you give, not something you have. It's not a gift till you give it. When you have it at your house, it's not a gift yet. Even if it's wrapped and in a box, it ain't a gift yet. But the moment you give it, now it becomes a gift because it's left your hands. But we possess our gifts and we hold them. I have this gift. I've got prophecy. I've got healing. I've got the apostolic. I've got this. And we use the gift of God to satisfy our own inner desire, our own inner longing to answer the questions, the deepest questions, and to solve the deepest places of pain in our own heart. And so then if you don't take my advice when I try to give it to you, I'm mad. Why? I needed you to take my advice because then I can go home and feel real good about me. But if, if you don't take my advice, you're robbing me of my sense of fulfillment in feeling like I could minister to you. Because if I can minister to you, it makes my life something significant. And I walk away, you got healed, but I'm happy for me. I prayed for him and he got healed. Won't you rejoice with me over me? Forget the fact that he got healed. I did it. I remember I was uh, when my wife and I were in Bible college. We did uh, work in, in a prison and in locally, and um, we had a team from the school that we put together. And we'd go in every month and we'd minister in the in the prison and to the prisoners. And we saw the power of God. and And there were always uh, individuals that would come who never saw themselves. It's it's powerful when when there are people who never saw themselves as anointed servants of the Lord, and God uses them in great and mighty ways, powerful ways. There's a purity to it. Well, there's one young lady that she never saw herself as a powerful, anointed servant of the Lord. You know, like me, I was dreaming about doing crusades when I was eight, you know, preaching to tens of thousands of people in Africa while the pastor's preaching. I'm sitting there fantasizing about me preaching. <laughs> I'm serious. I was eight years old. And I'd be sitting there thinking if I were preaching, I'd do a much better job than, than, than he's doing. But but uh, I, I, one night at the jail, at, at the prison, uh, um, we had an altar call and this young lady and she had never seen this happen before, but she laid hands on one of those prisoners. Bam! The power of God hit her, knocked her down under the power. She got baptized in the Holy Spirit, started speaking in tongues and she went just like this. <laughs> and she told us later, she had this thought, my heart must be so pure. It's really all about me. Can we talk about me? That's really what this is about is to celebrate me. 
I need to feel better about myself. And that's why I minister to you. And I can't call it compassion at all. Because I'm careful only to minister in places where there's a return for me. If I get nothing out of it, if I minister to you in secret and you get something from it and, and God uses me to touch you, I'm going to be sure to share that testimony with dozens of people. Let me share this testimony about how God used me. Jesus would heal people and say, don't tell nobody. Shh. Don't tell nobody. Tell the woman at the well, I'm the Christ, but don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Shh. You know why? Jesus only spoke when somebody needed to hear. He never spoke because he needed to speak. He never spoke because he just had something burning on the inside of him. He just had a word that's burning and it's just burning. I just got to say this, Father. Have people in the church come to me, Pastor, I got to preach. Oh, I got to. If I could just got this word, would you just let me preach? Would you just give me the pulpit? Because I got this word and I just got to get it out. Pastor, I got to preach. I, 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 I. You got to preach. You have to preach. Meaning it's for you. Meaning I'm going to put you in front of all of these people so that you can get your personal rocks off. But Jesus looked out and saw that the people were like sheep without a shepherd. And he had compassion on them. So he began to teach them many things. Never because he needed to speak. He didn't need to say a word. I mean, for crying out loud... He came from heaven where there were tens of millions of angels bowing down to him. He didn't need you and me to honor him. Where every angel in heaven would come into order at his every command. If he looked to the left, there were angels lining up. Yes, sir. He knew most of us would rebel against him. He knew that he had the cross waiting for him, but he spoke because we needed to hear. Here's the question. If you know you're going to be rejected for what you say, do you still say it? Or do you only speak in circumstances where you're guaranteed personal acceptance? And the question is, why was Jesus able to minister with such compassion? He had no inner turmoil to solve. He had no soul anguish to try to deal with, to try to find healing for. The ministry is the biggest self-therapeutic enterprise in the world. Jesus, there was nothing self-therapeutic about his ministry at all. Nothing. Not a whim of it. 
When he suffered, it was all our suffering, none of his own. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions, not his own. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. How was he able to do that? Here's what's fundamental to the ministry of Jesus. What's fundamental to the ministry of Jesus that became the impetus for his ministry of compassion was his relationship with the Father. Watch this. His ministry flowed from the favor of the Father, not toward it. He was not ministering to obtain his Father's favor. He was ministering because he had it. Until you have been established in the favor of the Father and know that the Father favors you, that you walk in His favor. Listen, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan and He comes out of the water and the, and the, the Father speaks from heaven. The Spirit descends on Him like a dove. And what does the Father say? This is my Son whom I love. In Him I'm well pleased. And he hasn't preached a sermon yet. He hasn't given a teaching yet. He hasn't given a parable yet. He hasn't healed a sick person yet. He hasn't walked on water yet. He hasn't been betrayed, beaten, crucified, or resurrected yet. He hasn't done, he hasn't even begun his ministry yet, but the Father says, I'm pleased with them. Now, Jesus does say in Matthew 25 that at the end, at the judgment, he's going to sit the sheep on his, on his right and the goats on his left. And he's going to say to the sheep on his right, when I was hungry, you fed me. And when I was sick, you, you visited me. And when I was in prison, you ministered to me. And, 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 and so on and so When I was naked, you clothed me. Well done. Good and faithful servants enter into the reward of your father. But there's a difference between the well done and the well pleased. Your ministry must begin with the well pleased and end with the well done. The problem is we're trying to start with neither the well-pleased nor the well-done, and we're working both for the pleased and the done. But the pleasure of the Father doesn't flow out of what you do. The pleasure of the Father flows out of who you are. He said, this is my son, not my servant. Not my slave. This is my son whom I love, and in him I'm well pleased. Why am I pleased with him? Because I'm his daddy. Period. I'll never forget the moment my daughter was born. The moment before she was born. My wife was in labor for seven days. You didn't know that? I never told you the story? Okay, we'll have to make time to tell you the story. My wife was contracting for seven days. They kept sending her home because she wasn't dilating enough. Well, she never did dilate enough. They finally had to do a C-section. And they waited so long that the C-section nearly killed her. But before the C-section started, I was sitting outside in the waiting room, waiting for them to, they were prepping her for the surgery. And before they called me in, I just broke down and started bawling. You know, I was bawling. 
Because I was getting ready to meet the most important person in my life. This little girl who hadn't done anything yet. I was so pleased. I hadn't even seen her yet. You know, you ever look at ultrasounds? If you haven't had a kid, they just look like blobs to you. I remember before I had a kid, people say, look at my ultrasound. Look at my baby. I'm like, okay, yeah. Isn't she beautiful? Okay. Uh, What am I looking at? Look, there's the arm. I'm like, that don't look like an arm to me. But man, when we got the ultrasound of my baby, oh my God, I'm like, she looks just like me. Look at that baby. Look, (laughs) my wife and I are arguing. She's like, no, she looks like me. I'm like, baby, look, come on. Look at that chin. I'll never forget. And I watched the whole C-section. I mean, I saw them cut the stomach and then they had these two things like crowbars. They reached in there and they pulled this flesh. Then they reached in and pulled out that uterus. And you ever played kickball? Remember those big like burgundy kickballs? That's what the uterus looks like. And they cut that uterus and they opened it and she was screaming before they even got her out of the uterus. I mean, they opened the uterus and I went, ah! And they pulled out this big purple Buddha looking baby. It was the most amazing moment of my life. I'm like, oh, that's my baby. That's my baby. That's my baby. That's my. And I remember cut the umbilical cord, took her into the the room. And, you know, she's laying there. Her eyes are closed. She can't even see nothing. (laughs) Babies are really in bad shape when they're born. I mean, it's, it's really not pretty. You know, she can't see nothing. She's, you know, she's all jacked up, but, you know, just rigored. But uh, um, I was so pleased. But you know what I was pleased with? I'm a daddy. This is my baby. And everybody was coming to the window and I'm just. the father says this is my son whom I love in him I am well pleased and because he was established in the pleasure of the father before he even began his ministry he was able to minister without anxiety and without fear He never carried rejection. And he was not susceptible to deception. No one ever possessed his soul. Because he was established in the favor of the father. There was no lingering question over his heart whether or not the father favored him. Because first and foremost... Prior to him understanding the favor of the father was him simply understanding the father. If you look at the ministry of Jesus, he was a revolutionary in his day. And the revolutionary revolutionary character of his ministry is in the fact that he referred to God as father. Now, you search the Old Testament for someone who called God father. They would have been stoned. But Jesus not only refers to God as his father, but he instructs his disciples to do the same. Listen, look at this. Look at this. Matthew chapter 5, 
Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus is claiming God as Father on behalf of his disciples. Look at this, Matthew 5.45, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Matthew 5.48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect Matthew 6, 1, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Matthew 6, 4, uh, he talks about your giving being in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you openly. And he says in verse, in chapter 6, verse 6, when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus is constantly establishing, rooting, and grounding his disciples in the knowledge of God as their Father. Because if you know him as Father, you're one step closer to, a, to understanding his favor. See, the reason the favor of God escapes most believers is because his fatherhood escapes us. And because his fatherhood is so foreign to me, I can't even begin to understand his favor. Because favor flows naturally out of fatherhood. One of the biggest challenges is that we speak of God primarily in terms of his creatorhood rather than his fatherhood. And the problem with that is that we can only understand God by means of analogy. And there are no human creators. You say, what? There's very creative people. Yes, they're creative, but they're not creators. There's a difference. A creator can make something out of nothing. Ex nihilo. A creative person takes something that already exists and manipulates it in a new way. Now, if you look at human creative people, what do we have? We have inventors, we have sculptors, we have artists, we have composers, and we have inventors, whatever. And so you say, well, God is my inventor and I am his invention. God is my composer and I am his best-selling single. God is my author and I am his book. God is my artist and I am his masterpiece, right? That's a, that's a big one, isn't it? Now, there's good in all of these analogies, but they miss something very important because I've never met an inventor who has a personal relationship with his invention. And secondly, what happens when an invention starts to malfunction? If you can't fix it, you throw it out and make a new one. And how many times have I heard people in the body of Christ say, you better be careful. If you don't do what God wants you to do, he'll throw you out and make another one. He'll raise somebody else up to do it. You better watch out. God will throw you out and raise someone else up to do it. Now, I don't see that in Scripture. He may throw you into the belly of a whale for three days until you repent and get right. <laughs> but I don't see him throwing you out and ra I don't see that in Scripture. I don't see God letting you off the hook. Why? Because he doesn't treat people like inventions. You're not his car or his toaster. Those are all functional metaphors. And we are the fatherhood of God is so foreign to us that the only thing we know how to do is figure out what our function is. 
And so you get saved and you come into the body of Christ. And the first question you have is, God, what do you want me to do? What's my calling? What does God want me to do? And so we take spiritual giftedness tests. And then we take personality assessments. And then we take a ministry interview. And then we get placed in a ministry so that we can find a function. So that we can do something. So we can feel significant about what we're doing. All the while, we don't know God as Father. And so we have none of us. We don't experience His favor over our lives. I just feel like a malfunctioning toaster. I feel like a toaster that doesn't make toast anymore. The hardest thing is that when you find your sense of being in your doing, but then you can't do it very well. And this is really the question that we're getting to tonight is what is your purpose? Why do you exist? Why did God bring you into existence? What is your purpose? If you ask 10 believers that, you'll get 10 different answers. And and the 99% of them will be functional. What is your purpose? My purpose is to win the lost. My purpose is to minister to orphans. My purpose is to care for widows. My purpose is to help old ladies across the street. My purpose is to give money to the poor. My purpose is to serve my pastor. My purpose is to serve the church. My past purpose is to lead worship. My purpose is to preach the gospel. This is my purpose. And we name all of these functional things. Well, what happened if you can't do that? How about this? You didn't start doing it till you were 25 years old. Did you live purposeless existence for 25 years before you started? How about this? If my purpose is to preach, I only get to do it a couple hours a week. I'm lost the rest of the week. And I feel real good when I'm doing it. But then you see me the next day and I'm all depressed. Wonder why? Because I'm not in my purpose. So I better make opportunity to do it more. See, here's the problem. The body of Christ is bipolar. You've got manic believers and you've got depressive believers and you've got manic depressive believers. Here's the manic believers. I need to serve more ministries. I've already, I'm already serving 18 ministries. I need to serve three more. Pastor, what else can I sign up for? Put me on the list for eight more ministries. I need to do 12. I need to be serving the church every night of the week. I need to make sure I don't have a life. And, and, and here, and, and you'll serve 28 different ministries and still feel like you're not doing enough. I've seen people who serve 18 different ministries weeping. I wish I could do more for God. I just want to slap the spirit of slap is coming. Have a Holy Ghost slap fest. Have you seen those slap fest videos? Go home and Google slap fest. Oh, it's awesome. And the women are the best. Because the women, they get those nice crisp slaps. The men are just all wild, all half fingers on the head. The women, psh, I mean, it's like a, anyway. So, so then we got the depressive believers. The depressive believers feel so overwhelmed by the idea of fulfilling their purpose that they just shut down and say, forget it. I'm not even going to try. You can't even get them to come to church. You can barely get them to come to church. And if they come to church twice a month, they've done something. Just be happy. I'm here. 
So the manic believers, they, they feel like I've got to, I've got to do something to fulfill my purpose. And so I'm going to do it with all of my heart and I'm just going to go after it and I'm just going to run after it. I'm just going to do, and I'm, I'm always got to do more and more and more and more. Then I burn out and I take a year sabbatical and then I come back and I jump right back into the rat race and I start doing more and more and more and more. And then I burn out and take a couple months sabbatical. Pastor, I just need a break. I'm so burnt out. I'm so... And the depressors over there, they, and, and here's the problem. It's about 80-20. 80% depressives, 20% manic, which puts a greater weight on the manics. And so now the manics have to go into overdrive to cover the weight of the 80% depressives, which makes the depressives feel, I'm, I'm not, you know, see these people going crazy. I'm not about to act like a fool. So why don't you serve the Lord and be like them? Please. That's what I got to do to serve the Lord. I'm cool. And for some reason, no matter how many ministries I serve and no matter how many hours I put into it and no matter how hard I try and no matter how hard I work, I never feel like I've done enough. I still don't feel like God's pleased. Have you ever prayed so long that you got up and said, I've prayed enough? (laughs) God is pleased with that. Like I heard God go, wow. It doesn't work that way, does it? Because God is only pleased with one thing. Hebrews 11:6 by faith, without faith, it is impossible to please God. It doesn't say service, it doesn't say sacrifice. At the end of the day, God is not pleased with your sacrifice unless it flows out of your faith. But if you are not established in the favor of God, then your sacrifice doesn't flow out of faith. It flows out of fear. God, please approve me. What is your purpose? Why are you here? And as long as we have that functional understanding of God as as this creator. Now, I'm not saying we should throw out God as creator. I mean, it's very biblical, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But what I'm proposing to you is that we have the wrong understanding of what it really means to be a creator. Really... When God created Adam and Eve, he was not an inventor bringing a masterpiece into existence. He was a father bringing a son and a daughter into existence. And Luke says clearly that Adam was the son of God. Read Luke's genealogy. Adam was the son of God. He wasn't God's invention, not his masterpiece. He was his son created in his own image and likeness. And when a father looks at a son or a daughter, they look for their likeness and their image. When you give someone your image and likeness, they are your son or your daughter. Adam was God's logo. He was the icon of God. God said, when I put you on a page, people are going to see you and they're going to think of me.
And so if we start with God as Father, then the question of our purpose is completely flipped. We flip the script on the whole thing. Why were you born? Why did your mother not abort you? I asked a woman in my church, she has a beautiful little boy. He's six or seven years old. And these parents, they're the most loving parents. I mean, this mother and father, you should see them. And the father is just tender and cares for his son. I just watch his movements when he's caring for his son. And this mother is just a beautiful family, very beautiful. I sat down with them one day and I asked the, the mother, why did you not abort Joseph? She said, what? Why did you have him? So well, I don't understand the question. Okay. <laughs> Why did you keep him? Why didn't you give him up to be adopted? She said, because I wanted him to take a piece of me and give it to the world. I said, what if the moment he was born, I showed up and said, I guarantee he will take a piece of you and give it to the world, but I'm taking him. Would that satisfy you? Would you say, ah, that's all I wanted? She said, no. I said, why not? Why did you want him? You know what she said? I just wanted to love him. You know what your purpose is? What kind of God do you make him out to be? Human beings who are evil have children just to love them. But God, he brings you into the world so that you can fulfill a very specific plan of which if you do not fulfill even one little part of it, he will throw you out and bring in somebody else to do it. Your purpose is to be the object of the Father's love. Your purpose is not a function. You know what? This life is but a, a it's but a breath. It's a moment. You're going to be with the Father in eternity, and any function you have in this little breath is going to be swallowed up in eternity. When he brought you into existence, he wasn't just thinking of this little breath. He was thinking of eternity. Your purpose in life is to be the object of the Father's love. To let him lavish his love on you. To be lavished in his love. That's your purpose. When my daughter was born, there was only one thing she could do. Just let us love her. That's all. She couldn't even love us back yet. You'll learn that. You'll grow into that. But we didn't even care yet. We were loving her before she even knew what love was. Matter of fact, I'll never forget. I got to tell you this part of the story. My wife and I tried to conceive a child for eight years. Eight years. In the second year of our marriage. Now, when you've been trying to get pregnant for two years, it does something to you. I mean, it works on you. 
I remember I was outside at the barbecue grill. We had some people in our apartment and I'm flipping ribs and I was praying. I said, God, I wish we could have a child. And God spoke to me so clearly out of the blue. It was almost, he was almost angry. He said, am I a genie that you should wish upon me? I said, oh, what do you mean you wish? Ask and it will be as you ask. I said, Father, give me a child. Give us a child. And he said, you will have a child. So I went in the house. I told my wife, God said, we're having a child. And I'm thinking, let's get busy because it's happening tonight. (laughs) Another six years go by. Nothing. In the eighth year of our marriage, we started to get some prophetic words for people that the time was soon. I remember I was flying in from Phoenix, Arizona on a Saturday night. I'm on the plane. I'm praying Saturday night. Lord, what do you want to do tomorrow morning in the service? And there were two things the Lord gave me. Number one, there's a a child in the congregation. The Lord said, call him up to the platform, pour a vial of oil over his head, and anoint him to be a prophet to the nations. Second thing the Lord said, call your wife up and give her this word. The scripture says, Adam called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. The Lord said, I want you to call your wife up to the platform. I want you to name her Eve. And give her this word. I called my wife up the next morning. I said, this is the word of the Lord to you. You are Eve. Because life is coming from your womb. And the Lord says, you will have a child. And it is your own child that will come from your own womb. Not an adopted child. Doesn't mean we won't adopt, by the way. And it will be a sign of fruitfulness in the body of Christ. And I turned to the church and I said, when you see this woman pregnant and with child, it is a sign to you that God has made you fruitful. Now, this is after eight years of us trying Nothing. This is in August of 2008. In September of 2008, we go to Indonesia on a mission trip. And we always minister for about 10 days on the island of Neos. And it's dirty, man. We're sleeping with the orphans and the kids. And, 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 uh, and you know. And so we, when we go back to Medan, we're in Medan in the, city, in, the, in, the, in the island of Sumatra. We typically have the day off. You know, we go shopping. We go to a nice hotel. You know, we, we get, go to the spa, get a massage or something. You know, my wife, I take her to get her hair did, you know, and she, cause you know, your hair's all jacked up after a mission trip, you know, so we're all, we're both all jacked up, you know? And so when we, when our contact, when our partners pick us up from the airport, they, uh, she says, listen, uh, I hate to disturb you, but there's a church in the dumps that I would, they would really love to have you come minister to them today. And in my heart, I said, no. Come on, we're tired. No more. My wife goes, yeah. <laughs> she goes, well, that means you can't stay at the nice hotel because the, I'm like, oh, great. Here we go. So we go to the dumps. It's raining hard. The mud was coming up to our knees. We go in this little church. It's packed full of people. And there's this, these two women in the back that are like 15 months pregnant. I mean, they're like. They are greatly with child. Like they're going to go into labor in about 45 minutes. They were probably already eight centimeters dilated. I mean, they were, I mean, they were ready, you know. I'm like, whoa! I mean, it was like she was sitting where you're sitting, Glory, and her, her womb almost hit me. I mean, that's, you know, I'm like, man. And so my wife remembers we had a box of prenatal vitamins in the car. She grabbed one of the guys, said, go to the car, get that box of vitamins. He brings it in. He goes and she goes and gives it to these two women, says, are there more pregnant women in this village? They go, yeah, a lot. My wife says, take me to them right now. 
So they take her all through the village and she starts passing out vitamins. And she ministers to every pregnant woman in the entire village. That night, we went back to the hotel and we conceived our child. Now watch this. We didn't know it for another six weeks. Six weeks later, we were supposed to leave to go do conferences in the underground churches in China. November 4th, 2008, we still didn't know we were pregnant. We had a sebequito. We don't call it that, but for you Koreans, I'll just throw that out there. Now, we had an early morning prayer session, 5.30 a.m. I said, baby, let's go. She said, I'm too sick. You go. I said, okay. I went to the church. I got on my knees. My heart broke. I said, God, please. We want a child. Please give us a child. And immediately the word of the Lord came to me. Remember when Hannah was in the tabernacle and she was weeping? And Elkanah came to her, her husband. What did he say? Isn't my love better to you than ten sons? I said, Lord, I want a child. You know, the Lord instantly said, isn't my love better to you than ten sons? I cry. I just, I couldn't even leave the prayer meeting. I just sat there just crying. I said, Lord, and I completely released it. I said, Lord, if we never have a child. I had forgotten that I gave that word. By the way, people come to me all the time. Do you remember that word you gave me? I probably only remember you. You know what? My brain, I can remember things, but, you know, events, you know. A lot of times I forget, so I forgive me in advance because I don't remember the word I gave you because I don't remember the word I preached last Sunday at church. I really don't. Um, so so um, I had forgotten about these, this prophetic word, and I'd forgotten it all. I'm back to, Lord, please give us a child. And the Lord said, isn't my love better to you than ten sons? And I just cried for the whole hour. Oh, Lord, your love is better to me than ten sons. If we never have a child, we have your love. On my way home that day, my wife calls me. Stop at the store and pick up a pregnancy test. I'm feeling strange. As soon as her ojum touched that stick. (laughs) A big purple plus sign came up on it. We were stunned. She said, baby. I'm pregnant. I was like, baby, (laughs) you're pregnant. (laughs) My wife goes, don't tell anybody yet. We're just going to tell our closest family members and friends. I said, okay. My wife said she was on the phone with her sister. Next thing you know, all these calls are coming in. People are crying. (gasps) I just heard. (laughs) I couldn't help myself. I sent a text message to the whole church. (laughs) (laughs) It was on Facebook. (laughs) I left by myself for China the next morning. I was in China for a few days and I get a text message from my wife. She said, I just came back from the doctor. There's a problem with the baby. I said, what do you mean problem? What what kind of problem? You know, when you've waited eight years and you conceive and they say there's a problem, you freak out. I was freaking out. What, what kind of problem? What did they say? And she said, uh, I don't want to talk about it. Just pray. I'm believing for a better report tomorrow. So all day long, I'm freaking out. The next day, she texts me again. Listen, the doctor says I've had a miscarriage. I said, what? She said, yeah, they found a sack there, but there's no embryo in it. And so the doctor said the sack is six weeks old. So obviously, I was pregnant for six weeks. But there's nothing in it. It's completely empty, which means I had a miscarriage. 
And the doctor said, in a few days, you're going to start bleeding. Just come see me. We'll take care of you. So I'm freaking out. I look at the Chinese pastor. I said, there's a problem with my baby. And he looked at me and he said, are you Christian? Are you Christian? I said, I thought I was. But now I'm not so sure. He said, you just tell me you and wife could not have baby. Eight years. I said, yes. You just tell me God speak to you saying wife have baby. I said, yes. And you just tell me <laughs> wife was pregnant. I said, yes. Do you think God let wife get pregnant to kill baby? Are you a Christian? He says, I know even pray. No problem. Come on, let's go preach. <laughs> I said, yeah. And so I sent a text message to my wife. The Lord says there's no problem. <laughs> Check it out. I went into my went into the room and I got on my knees and I just laid on my face and I began to pray. And the Lord spoke to me and said, your wife has not had a miscarriage. I have not called you to walk that road. And that's why there's no grace for it. Had I called you to walk that road, I would have given you grace for it. When you get home, lay hands on your wife's stomach and speak life, and the child will live. I got home. couldn't wait. Laid down in the bed next to my wife. Put my hand on her stomach. I said, I speak life in the name of Jesus. I felt the presence of God come, and I felt life go into her womb. We went to the doctor the next morning. And the moment that ultrasound happened, and I mean, all it is is a little sack, little little sack. But inside that sack, there was the embry embryo. And in the center of that embryo, there's the heartbeat. We melted. I cried for days. She hadn't done anything yet. She hasn't washed dishes. She hasn't vacuumed anything or ironed anything. She hasn't gotten straight A's in school yet. She hasn't gotten her doctorate and become a lawyer or a missionary. She hasn't done anything yet. But my pleasure is based upon my fatherhood, not on her performance. Now watch this. We, this is where we get it twisted. When babies are born, if we would just follow the life of a child, of a baby, and try to emulate that in our Christian life, we would do so much better. I have never met or heard of a baby whose first word was baby.
Baby's first words are never baby. Why? Because their first, their first level of awareness is mommy and daddy. They don't even know themselves yet. They're not self-conscious at all. They have no self-consciousness whatsoever. They're only conscious of mommy and daddy. And their first words are mommy or daddy. Always. The only thing I know is you. And later they grow into the ability to recognize themselves. I remember Alethe at first would say, Daddy. She said, Daddy, before she said, Mommy, I was so happy. <laughs> and she said, Appa. She was Korean, you know, Appa, Appa. And when she learned that word, Appa, she said it 24 7. Appa, 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 Appa. I would go to work and my wife would call me. She's saying Appa all day long. That's all she says is Appa, 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 Appa. She said, Mommy. She said, Oma. And then she said, Mommy. And then she said, Appa. She said, Daddy, Daddy, Appa, Mommy, Oma, Oma, Appa. And she even, I remember young, she just learned those two words and she'd look at pictures. She loves pictures. You know, she'd look at pictures and she'd see me and she'd say, Appa. And she'd see my wife, she'd say, oh my, you know, but she didn't understand who that other little thing was there. She didn't even know herself. She didn't even see herself yet. If we just had more believers who couldn't see themselves, all I see is the father. There's the father. Appa. All I see is Appa, 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 Appa. That's all I see. That's all I know. That's all I'm aware of is there's the father. But no, all we see is ourselves. And I'll never forget the day when she suddenly developed an awareness of herself and an ability to recognize herself. But she always saw me or my wife first. She'd look at a picture of the three of us together and she'd say, Appa. Or now she says, she became an American baby. So she goes, Daddy. <laughs> and then she sees my wife and she goes, Mommy. And then she sees herself and she goes, Baby. <laughs> now. She knows who she is. You don't start with your identity. That's the big problem in the body of Christ. It's the first thing I want to know is who I am. Haven't even met the Father yet. Haven't discovered the Father yet. I'm not intimate with the Father yet, but I'm, I just want to know who I am. Would you tell me what my calling is? Would you tell me what my role is? Would you tell me what my significance is? Would you tell me who I am and what you have for me and what you want me to do? And, and would you show me what I'm supposed to do? And I just want to know me. And I use the father as a means of self-discovery. I approach the father as a means of finding out information about myself. Did you see the born identity? Remember the born identity? Now, first of all, if you read the book, you're in good shape. If you saw the movie, not so much. The movies were tight, though, but I mean, if you read the books, see, I read all three of the books prior to watching the movie. And when I read The Born Identity, I, I had to read it again after I finished it the first time. I mean, I started immediately, turned to the first page. It was riveting. I was a high school student, like 10th grade, and it was riveting. And when I finished it the second time, I opened to the first page and read it again. 
And when I got done with it the third time, I immediately went to the store and bought the second one, the Born Supremacy, and read it twice. And then I went and bought the Born Ultimatum and read it, and I was disappointed. <laughs> I only read it once. You know why? Because Jason Bourne starts out as this guy who can do anything. I mean, he's got all of this stuff. But he washes up on a shore in the first scene of The Born Identity. He washes up on a shore completely in a, in a coma unconscious. He comes to in a doctor's office months later. And the first thing he discovers about himself is what he can do. So he has this list of skills. I know Kung Fu. I know several different languages. How does he discover them? Because three guys attack him. And he puts the smash down. I mean, he just like, Wah! He pulls, it, he pulls out that Kung Fu and puts those three guys in the hospital. And he finds he speaks languages. People speak to him in German. He understands. They speak to him in Swiss. He understands. They speak to him in French. He understands and speaks back. They speak to him in Italian. He's like, how many languages do I know? He speaks Chinese and Japanese. He speaks all of these languages. It's like, who am I? All he knows is what he can do. He doesn't even know who he is yet. And he definitely doesn't know who he's related to yet. That's how most believers live their lives. I've got a list of skills. I got this gift and I got that gift and I got this ability and I can do that and I can do this. I still don't know who I am. He's terrified to find out he's an assassin. Most of us live our lives like the born identity. Everything he does, and when he finds a guy who has the information, the guy who created him at Langley, he starts pursuing that guy, not for relationship, but for information. And the average believer in the body of Christ suffers from a state of spiritual amnesia, and we pursue the Father not for relationship, but for information. Would you please tell me something about me? A lot of times my wife and I visit my parents after church. But we used to before the baby was born. All bets are off. Once you have a baby, life changes. I mean, just going to the store becomes a major, you know, Make sure you got baby wipes and diapers and extra change of clothes and a bottle and some snacks. And Anyway, one day before the baby was born, we visited my parents', my parents house on a Sunday after church. And, uh, you know, growing up, growing up in a family teaches you something. We walked in and, and uh, I said to my mom, my mom greeted us at the door. I said, Mom, where's Dad? She said, he's sleeping downstairs. And I said, okay, how long has he been asleep? She said, 30 minutes. I thought, his Sunday afternoon nap, he needs about three more hours. We're not going to see him. Suddenly, I thought to myself, I'm going to go get in the bed with my daddy. So I did. Went down the stairs. Now, my dad, when he takes an afternoon nap, he doesn't lay on the couch in his clothes. No, he strips down to his drawers, <laughs> closes the shades, and gets under the covers in his bed like he's going to sleep for the night. 
Now, I didn't strip, but I, got, I climbed in the bed. I took off my shoes, climbed into bed with my dad, and just laid there. Just listened to him breathe. And I remember thinking to myself, this is my purpose. I mean, this is why my mom and dad said to each other one day, let's have a baby. And this is why they rejoiced when they found out they were pregnant. And this is why they wept tears of joy when they held me for the first time. Not so that I could grow up and become something great. Not so that I could follow their perfect plan for my life. Not for what I could do at all, but just so that one day I would always return home to the Father and just be okay listening to Him breathe. Not needing anything. Not asking for anything. Not needing to say anything. Not needing to hear anything. But just to be close to Him. And I felt His love. I felt connected to his heart. And I felt at home. My daughter has learned already that the place she belongs is right here. When she's distressed, she runs right to me and lifts up her hands. When I pick her up and I, I just hold her in my chest, everything's okay. When she's scared... She runs to me and just lifts up her hands and I pick her up, hold her in my chest and everything's okay. When she's in pain, she slept, she sleeps in the bed with me and especially my wife has gone on the mission field. You know, my wife has been in Indonesia and so for about eight days, uh, Alethea and I were just home together by ourselves and I put her in the bed with me and, uh, but I, I put her on the wrong side of the bed and she rolled out of the bed in the middle of the night and I just heard thump. And I freaked out, jumped up. Oh, my God. You know, I'm so scared. You know, I pick her up and she's crying. And she hit pretty hard. But as soon as I held her, she stopped crying and went back to sleep. Because for some reason, when you're in the father's arms, even if you're in pain, it doesn't hurt as bad. But when you're not in the Father's arms, you're just stuck with your pain. And you've got to find a way to solve it yourself. When she was younger, she was scared of everything. Remember the first time I turned on the blender to make a smoothie in the kitchen? She was sitting there playing with her toys. I mean, she literally started trembling. Her up real quick. I didn't notice it for a few seconds. I'm just brrrr. and I look down and she's freaking out. <laughs> and I pick her up and immediately she's okay. My wife turned on the vacuum cleaner. Oh my God. And what I do is when there's something she's scared of that she shouldn't be, I pick her up and I go stand right next to it. There's the blender, it's going. She's scared, but she's in my arms. It can't touch you because I'm with you. My rod and my staff, they comfort you. You can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil because I'm with you. You see, 
David is talking about God as Father. When I go home to see my parents, they don't call me Pastor Benjamin. They never have. My mom does in public. But my father doesn't. Now that's Benjamin to me. That's my son. When you get to heaven, there's not going to be any preaching. No teaching. No worship leading. No discipleship. No evangelism. Everybody's already saved. No deliverance. Everybody's already free. No laying hands on the sick because everybody's already healed. No offerings because the building's already paid for. (laughs) And there won't be any disasters. The question is, what if God took all those ministries away from you today? Would he have taken away your sense of purpose? Purpose is not functional, it's relational. Simply to let the Father love you. And what tends to happen is we get so caught up serving the Father that we forget to come visit Him and let Him love us. We get so caught up serving Him. That we forget how to let Him love us. Tonight God's calling you to return to your Father. But to return to Him as your Father. Not as your boss. But I'm much more comfortable with Him as my boss. Because if if I just show up to work on time, and he just gives me the to-do list and says, here's the things I need you to do. Then it's tangible. At the end of the day, I can know I pleased him depending upon how many items on the to-do list I got done. But there's a difference. Sons and daughters serve their fathers too. But they don't serve as employees or slaves. Because when I serve my mom or my dad, I serve my inheritance. So when I go home, if the, if the lawn needs to be mowed, I'll mow it at my parents' house. And I never ask for money, ever. Why? That's my house. It's my inheritance. I'll serve even harder. But not because I have to. Not because I'm a slave. But because I'm a son, and when you've been established in the spirit of sonship, that is when you've been established in 
the Father's favor over your life. And when your ministry begins with the understanding the Father favors me simply because I'm His son or His daughter, simply because He's my Father, the Father favors me. It's not based on what I've done. It's based on who He is. And He favored me before I was even born. As Paul said, in love He predestined you. In love, before the foundation of the world, in love, He predestined you. He loved you before you ever existed. John says, behold, what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us. Paul prays, he said, for this reason, I bow my knee before the Father from in whom every creature in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of His glorious riches... He would cause you to be rooted and established in his love. So that you being rooted and established in love might have power together with all the saints to, to grasp how high and how deep and how wide and how long. And to know the love of Christ, this love that surpasses knowledge, that you might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What God wants more than anything else is for you to grasp His love. We're grasping out for His power. We want His revelation. We want His understanding. We want His authority. We want His ministry. We want His, we want, we want His resources. But what He wants us to have more than anything is His love. And when we're rooted and established in His love and in the understanding of the favor that rests on our life, now He can send us anywhere to do anything. Why? Because I know that the Father favors me. I know the Father. You know my daughter, she will come and climb up on my lap in a second. Because she knows that that's her place. She knows she belongs. And it, she doesn't wrestle with, oh, I don't deserve this. That's not even a thought in her mind. Do I deserve it or not deserve it? Please. I was born for this place. <laughs> and let the Father try to deny me. Let him try to say, no, I will put a demand on his love. I will scream until he picks me up. I don't care where we are. I don't care if we're on a plane. I don't care if we're on the freeway and you got, and I have to sit in the car seat. I don't care what the law says. The father loves me and he owes me that love. And I deserve, I don't even, it's not even a question of deserving. It's just a fact. The father loves me. He favors me. I'm his favorite one. I have a place in His arms. I have a place in His arms. I have a place in His arms. I've got a place in His heart. And that's where your ministry has got to begin. Because then you don't need everyone else around you to accept you. Because you can say with David, if my father and mother reject me, the Lord has accepted me. Then you don't need everyone else to affirm you. The Father's already affirming. Jesus knew that the crowds that affirmed Him today were going to be screaming, crucify Him tomorrow. But He wasn't moved by any of it. You know why? Because He knew that the Father said, this is my Son and I'm pleased with Him. And that's the only pleasure He needed. And the only thing that breaks us free from the ministry of compulsion and establishes us in the ministry of compassion is that we get our needs met someplace else. 
I stopped trying to get my needs met from the ministry. And I learned how to get my needs met from the Father. I learned how to go back to my Father's house. The prodigal son, he went to a far off country. And there he began to be in want. He didn't know want as long as he lived in the Father's house. I find myself in the ministry and suddenly I'm experiencing want. It means I've left the Father's house. I might still live in the master's house, but I don't live in the father's house anymore. But when I come back to the father's house and I find my place in his arms, the rest of the world can reject me if you want. I'm not serving for your opinion or approval. Does that mean I'm going to be insubordinate and I won't listen to anybody anymore? No. There's too many believers take that in the wrong direction and they turn it into an excuse for insubordination. No, I'm, I'm the opposite. I'm Joseph. You put me under Potiphar, I will serve him with all of my might. You want me to scrub the floor? Man, you ain't never seen a floor like it's about to be scrubbed. Why? Because I'm Joseph. My brothers took the coat of many colors off my body, but they could not take the Father's favor from my heart. I know I walk in excellence. I don't care if I'm a slave or a prisoner or a prime minister. I'm going to function the same way. Why? Because the Father favors me. The Father clothed me in a coat of many colors in the presence of my brothers and said, this is my favorite one. I'm his favorite one. I don't care where I am in the world or what I am doing. I know it's going to be excellent. If I'm doing it, it's going to be excellent. It's going to succeed. It's going to prosper. It's going to grow. I can't help it. Why? I am the favored son of Jacob. I am Israel. Father's favor does that to me. It can't be taken from my heart. I don't care if you throw me in a pit. I wear the Father's favor like a garment. And everywhere I go, I serve, but I'm not serving Potiphar. I'm serving my Father's favor. And I'm not serving for it. I'm serving because of it. God is raising up a new generation of believers in the body of Christ who are established in the favor of the Father before they step foot in the ministry. I'm talking the moment you step foot into the ministry, you step in and say, I'm here to serve because the Father favors me. He's so pleased with me. He is so pleased with me. Why? Because he's the Father. And because I know him as Father, the first thing I know is his favor. I know the look in his eyes when he sees me. I know the smile on his face when he sees me. I hear the sound of his voice when he sings over me. I know that when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he's with me. And he'll pick me up and carry me in his arms. Because I know the Father and I don't know him as my slave master. I don't know him as my boss. I know him as my father. And yes, he gives me many things to do. He gives me many tasks and many assignments, but he gives them to me as my father, not as my boss. He never steps out of the fatherhood role in my life. He's always being my father and he's always favoring me, even when he's disciplining me because he only disciplines those he loves. And so I'm going to hold my head up wherever I go. My head will never be cast down with shame. I can never be ashamed of the one that God favors. Ever. And tonight God wants to establish you in his favor. Because he wants to establish you 
in his fatherhood. Bow your heads. I need someone on the keyboard. Father, I thank you that right now you are breaking so many of us free from our hard man theology. So many of us are like the man with one talent. I knew you were a hard man, that you reaped where you didn't sow, that you always took what isn't yours. So I was afraid. And so I took that talent you gave me and I buried it in the ground. I knew you were a hard man. You see that? I knew you were a hard man. But God, tonight you're breaking free. You're breaking us free from that hard man theology. Tonight you're bringing clarity to who you are. Because it really isn't about who we are at all. And we're so interested to know who we are in you. And you would have us to even forget about our identity and focus on our purpose. Simply to let you love us in whatever condition we're in. We make all kinds of excuses for not allowing you to love us. But I've done this and I've done that and I've been this and I've been that and I haven't. I've had even people say to me, but I I don't really serve any ministries in the church. As if I don't have the right to allow the Father to love me because I haven't served the church well enough. You know what? If you start letting the Father love you, I bet you would serve the church. That whatever hindrance was in the way would be taken away. You couldn't wait to serve your other brothers and sisters. Some of you found yourselves burnt out in the midst of ministry. Fried. Tired. Unhappy. Disappointed. Carrying rejection. There's many of you here, you carry rejection. You've carried it from your mothers and fathers. You've carried it from your upbringing. You've carried rejection around with you. You've carried it, you've carried it like a backpack, like a burden. You never leave home without it. But tonight the Father is removing that burden of rejection from your heart and from your mind. And He is establishing you in His favor. You say, well, I can't even understand that favor because I didn't have a good father. Listen, I don't care if you had a good father or a bad father or no father. I do not care. Your ability to know God as Father is not determined by what He did to you, whether He was there or not. Because the Scripture says He is a Father to the fatherless. Meaning fatherlessness is no obstacle to him. He is able to overcome your heart. He's able to overcome your emotions. He's able to overcome your understanding. He's able to overcome your hurts and your fears. You say, well, I'm afraid of trusting. He's able to overcome your fear of trust. It doesn't matter to him. He is a father to the fatherless. And he's coming to bring his fatherhood to those fatherless places in your life. The only thing he's asking of you is that you let him love you and that you let him love you every day. That you simply receive your love. Listen, there's nothing that hurts a father more than when his child doesn't let him love. Last time I was here in December, I was gone for from my house only five or six days. But when I went home, when I showed up, my daughter was standoffish towards me. She was mad at me for being gone. And for just a few minutes, she wouldn't let me love her. Nothing hurt more than that. I wasn't angry with her. I just wanted to love her. But later that night, 
She had a moment of fear. She woke up in the middle of the night screaming. And I ran in the room and I picked her up. And at that moment, she allowed me to love her. Some of you, you're walking through difficult situations right now. You're afraid. Just let the Father pick you up and hold you tonight. Let him take you in his arms. Let him love you tonight. Let him lavish you with his love. Because if you allow the Father to lavish you with his love, he will come and be a father to the fatherless places in your heart. You say, when you speak that word father, I can't even connect with that. I can't even understand that. That's not even on my grid. When you speak that word father, I have a negative reaction in my spirit, in my heart, in my soul. Well, listen, God's getting ready to overwhelm that and overcome that. Yes, that father that was supposed to be there wasn't there. The father that was supposed to affirm you and give you his favor, he never gave it to you. But God is able to give you what he couldn't give you. God is able to overcome your heart. Hallelujah. And Father, I pray right now that in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would establish your sons and daughters in your favor. Lord, I just release the favor of God right now. I release the favor of God right now. I release the favor of God right now. And I command the hearts of these sons and daughters of yours to be established in your favor right now. In the name of Jesus Christ. I remove every hindrance from your favor. Every hindrance. Every hindrance. Everything that would hinder it. Everything that would stand in the way of it. I just remove it right now. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I remove it. You're not serving for his favor. You're serving because of it. You will not wake up in the morning with a question mark anymore. You will not serve from a precarious place anymore, wondering if you're approved. You'll serve because you are approved. You are approved because you are a son, because you are a daughter. You are approved. Father, I remove the heavy burdens right now in Jesus' name. Let every heavy burden be removed. That's why, Jesus, you said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke is easy because it is not a yoke that you carry in order to obtain approval. It's easy because it's a yoke that you carry because you have been approved. Your ministry will not flow towards the Father's favor. It'll flow out of it. And because your ministry will flow out of the Father's favor, everywhere you go, you're going to give the Father's favor away. You don't even need to keep it because you know you can't lose it. You will no, your life will no longer be a quest for favor. Your life will no longer be a quest for affirmation. You will no longer live in search of affirmation. Somebody affirm me. The Father's affirmation is coming on you right now. And in reality, it already came, but you didn't understand it. Your heart didn't know how to receive it. But right now, your heart is opening up to receive it because your mind is understanding it. You said, you see, Jesus said that the, 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 the seed that was sown along the path of the birds ate up are people who hear the word but don't understand it. And so it's unfruitful in their lives. 
And the Father has been giving you His favor since before you knew it, but you didn't understand it, and so it was unfruitful in your life. But now understanding has come. Now you understand the favor of the Father, and so it's sinking deep into the soil of your heart, and it's going to bring forth fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. I establish you in the favor of the Father right now. In Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd manifest the favor of the Father right now. On these sons and daughters of yours, manifest the favor of the Father right now. Manifest the favor of the Father, I pray it in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Come on, just soak in that. Just let, just let the Holy Spirit release that in you. Just receive it. Just, just let your heart and your mouth say, Father, I receive your love. I receive your favor. Hallelujah. Mm. Mm. Father, let your favor come and remove anxiety and fear. There's so much anxiety and fear that so many of you have been carrying. You've been carrying anxiety. You've been carrying fear. You need to perform. Performance anxiety. Fear of failure. I can't fail. Why? Because it'll do something to me. You're right, you can't fail because love never fails. And behold, what manner of love the Father has lavished on you. Love never fails. And so he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it into the day of Jesus Christ. Your sense of identity will no longer be wrapped up in the nature of your performance. The quality of your performance will no longer determine your sense of identity. And it will no longer determine for you the posture of the Father towards you. You will no longer see the Father's face in your performance. But you will see the Father's posture towards you in what happened to Jesus Christ when He hung on the cross between earth and heaven. That was the only performance. That was the only work that the Father needed to give you His favor. And His favor rests upon you because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Not because of your sacrifice. Not because of your faithfulness. You could serve Him a hundred years with all of your heart, with all of your life, and leave everything. And He wouldn't love you any bit more than He does now. Because He can't love you anymore. He loves you fully. He loves you eternally. He wouldn't be any more pleased because He can't be any more pleased. Yes, there's a reward in your service. We're going to get to the well done. But you started with the well done instead of the well pleased. And there's been so much anxiety and fear. Many of you have struggled with depression. And you come to church with a smile on your face and, and you look like you're doing well, but you go home and you're riddled with depression. You're carrying a crushing burden on your shoulders and it's weighing you down. Many of you have even struggled with sin. You feel like the Father's not pleased with you anyway. That's what's underneath it. Some of you here have struggled with pornography addiction. You wonder why you can't stop falling into the same stuff again and again and again and again. It's because you need to be established in the Father's favor. And when you go home at night and you don't feel favored by the Father, you need something to make you feel favored. But you know what? You're not going to need that anymore because you're going to feel favored all the time. 
Lord, I thank you that the truth sets us free. We're being established in the truth tonight. We're being established in the truth tonight.